It's time for Cadillac on Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac on Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello, friends. Welcome to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. As we work our way through the month of September, we want to zero in today on a variety of important public health topics. As we have for the past two plus years, We will find out the latest on COVID-19, including case rates, vaccine boosters, and just general areas of concern regarding COVID in our community. We'll also examine the devastating challenges of drug overdose, share valuable information and advice on what we can all do to prevent a problem that is on the rise in our community. And how prepared are you for an emergency? We have wildfires burning all around us. Winter is on the horizon. We will take a dabble into uh, emergency preparedness as we make our way in through the month of September. And finally, we'll connect with the leader of a Hanford area contractor leading the way in supporting key community projects with the Cadillac Medical Center Foundation. First, we welcome to the phone Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, uh, I know thankfully we've seen the COVID picture in our area seem to stabilize. Is that still the case this week? It certainly is, Jim. We're still um, holding pretty steady the way we have for the last few weeks. A very slight uptick maybe this last week, but then we have to remember school started, which means kids are getting together, teachers, staff are getting together, plus the holiday weekend. We always see a spike after a holiday weekend. And it wasn't a particularly large spike, but we did notice that ever so slight uptick. And then when we look at What's happening in the world of testing, the CBC West test site is continuing to hold steady. You know, 350 to 450 people per week have been testing over the last few weeks. And the positivity rate is staying at about 35 to 37% positive. So uh, that, that's our message that, yeah, COVID is still out there. People are still getting sick. And then the other uh, metric we look at is our wastewater, and we did report a few weeks ago that we saw a significant spike in the wastewater concentration of the virus. And then the interesting data was to look at what our hospitalization rate did about that time, and even though it's very low, we still did see a little bit of an uptick in our hospitalization rate, which is what we kind of expect when we see that, that wastewater concentration go up. We know there's more virus circulating. More people are going to get sick. And I know certainly this has been going on so long and people just, you know, they start to tune out the data and start to tune out the fact that the severity of this. And thankfully, we are at levels that are certainly manageable, if not uh, promising as we move into the fall when things get more concerning due to the cold weather. But I know one point that you touched on a week ago, and I think the data that you were sharing with me uh, recently or today, in fact, is that the, you've had four deaths reported this past week, and that's in our two-county area. And, and certainly one is too many, but the fact that we continue to have people dying of COVID, what does that mean? What does that, what does that tell us? Well, it, it's still very concerning to us when we have vaccines that can protect us so well from maybe not preventing the disease completely, but definitely we have seen the data to prove that being vaccinated, you are not going to die of COVID. 
it does prevent deaths from COVID. Yet we're still seeing, like you said, this past week, there were four deaths. One was a rather young man in his 40s. So we know that this, um, this virus is still killing people. At a time when we have vaccines that have been proven safe, they've been given to more people in a few year period of time for us to look exactly what the risk is and the risk with all vaccines exist to some extent, but what we're seeing with COVID vaccine, the little risk that you could, I mean, there are risks out there, but the benefit of getting COVID vaccinated really could mean the difference between life and death for you because the people that are dying are unvaccinated or under-vaccinated. The data is very clear on that. And then when we look at the U.S. data and realize that COVID is the third leading cause of death in America, and that's been holding steady for a while now, we're able to look back at the last two and a half, you know, pushing three years, and really start to put together some of the data and be able to see how it has trended over time. And when we're still seeing it as third leading cause of death in the U.S., and it's preventable, of course, that, that has those of us in public health who believe in preventing disease and illness a little bit concerned. A quick question on that. I know people that would challenge this third leading cause of death. I think the one comment we've heard throughout the COVID pandemic is that COVID is listed as a cause of death when it might have been something else that they were either in the hospital for or something that they were suffering from. How do you respond to that? Give us some context for that. Well, when a COVID death is reported as a COVID death, the death certificate is looked at and it's if that medical provider puts on that death certificate that it was a cause of that person's death. So there definitely has to be a correlation to that infection did lead to their death. And we really suspect that there are a lot more deaths precipitated by getting a COVID infection than actually are reported, much like influenza. We know that people who catch influenza are more likely to get a heart attack after they catch this infection because of the inflammatory processes that happen in the body. The exact same thing is true with the COVID virus, and that's what we're seeing happening, is maybe that person never got a COVID diagnosis, but they died of a heart attack or an embolism, a blood clot, or something else, but maybe they really did have COVID that precipitated that. That data would never be called a COVID death. They have to have a medical provider deem it was one of the causes of this person's death. You had touched on that third leading cause of death being COVID in our country. The fact that the most of them are occurring in the unvaccinated or under-vaccinated of our population. We now have yet another booster that's upon us and available. Should people be getting that and, and what should they what should they follow? Yes, they should be getting their booster after they have gotten a primary series. So you need to get your primary series completed. And then two months after either the completion of your primary series or for those of us who got our primary series and then went ahead and got the boosters of the regular vaccine, if it's been two months since then, you can go ahead and get the, the bivalent booster that is out right now through Moderna and Pfizer. 
So relative to COVID, it sounds like uh, we're in a good spot, but we, we still have to, to be conscious of, of where this can take us if we don't uh, pay attention. Yeah, we're looking, you know, certainly toward the winter months with uh, flu coming on, and Australia had a very bad flu season. And since we look at them to predict how our season is going to look, um, that and COVID certainly have us concerned, and that's why vaccinations are so extremely important. And let's end on flu, and you raise that, get a little more deep into this Australia component, because I know in past years we've talked about that. So during COVID, uh, were they like us, where the flu numbers were significantly lower due to the mitigation strategies everybody was following, and now maybe uh, we're back to a level of concern because we're not as paying attention to those strategies? The mitigation strategies were in effect, and we did see all across, actually, you know, internationally that flu rates went down because we know those mitigation strategies work for these types of infections. And then realizing that many of us who uh, maybe caught the flu didn't catch the flu. And so our immune system hasn't been triggered a little bit. And so now we're heading into a, a flu season without mitigation strategies in place, without our body having history of maybe catching the flu or being exposed to the flu and having a little bit of an immune response. And then the real decrease in uptake of flu vaccine that we've seen over the last couple of years. So we know that all of these things put together can put us our immune systems in a pretty vulnerable situation with regard to influenza. So finally, just a quick concluding comment uh, on the flu shot. Uh, should people get those as soon as they're available? And then is it possible if you're eligible or want to get a booster, you can do them at the same time? Absolutely. In fact, we've been um, doing some of our high-dose flu for some of the elderly population and COVID vaccines at the same time we're hearing uh, really pretty good results. Most people are complaining about the typical, yeah, my arm hurt, but we're not hearing at this point any exceptional reactions, whether you're getting the booster alone or the booster with a flu shot. So absolutely, it is safe to get both at the same time. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. Thanks, thanks so much as always. We'll be back with more of Cadillac on Call right after this. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And once a month on our program, in addition to focusing on the latest relative to the COVID-19 situation, we are also going to give a public health focus on a variety of issues uh, beyond the pandemic and beyond the virus that is that we've come to know as COVID. And we want to examine some other important public health topics, and certainly one that has gained a lot of attention per periodically on this program and certainly all across the country and in our community is the area of substance use of disorder and, in particular, uh, the use of drugs. And, in particular, even further is 
fentanyl, and it's certainly a dangerous, dangerous drug, and, and, and unfortunately it's being used in very high numbers all across the country, and including in our community. And we're happy to welcome to our program public health nurse Shelley Little to talk about the incidence of overdose, and, and really, I guess, as important, Shelley, as uh, some of the, the prevention strategies that we can all take advantage of, but maybe initially, if you would, Give us an idea of just how significant is the problem here in Benton and Franklin counties in our area? Yeah, no problem, Jim. Thanks for having me. Um, Accidental overdose can happen to anyone, no matter their race, socioeconomic status. But right now we're seeing an increase um, in certain occupations. So um, the construction trade and labor industry um, saw a 100% increase in overdose deaths in the last year, and that has maintained the highest incidence of overdose of any occupation since 2016. Another big increase is in the restaurant and bar industry, where there's been over a 300% increase in overdose deaths among food service workers um, in 2020. Do we know why, I, I guess not to zero in on those two particular areas, but what, that, what, what is the reason for that? Do we know what, what's causing this? Well, substance use, um, and actually fentanyl in particular, has been the drug right now in, in all communities, like you mentioned before, um, that has kind of been, made it onto the streets for us. So it... You know, it's accessible. It it acts very fast. It has the right um, effects for a person that's looking to, um, it, it's a pain reliever. I mean, that's essentially what it was used for and what it is used for medically. We still use it. And I was going to say on that on that comment, and I've, I've over the past years as we've addressed this topic on on our program, you know, whether you're a football player, whether you're a new mom or you're somebody that's just dealing with a bad back that's causing you chronic pain, is that what has contributed to this? And like you said, it can happen to anybody, and it's just and it, it's what makes it so dangerous is the fact that it is, it is very addictive. So there's a national plan. CDC has a national plan of prevention of overdose since it is just not a local area issue. Um, but so they have limited prescribing for physicians, and that has gone down um, a whole bunch in the last five to 10 years. Um, law enforcement is taking more and more of these drugs off of the streets, so that's an effective strategy that's working. Um, but our overdose deaths from opiates are increasing. Um, they did the big litigation against uh, the, phar- the pharmacy companies, um, and they won those settlements. Um, so what it is now is these illicit drugs coming from other countries into our country are actually um, the biggest cause of concern right now. So obviously we've identified the problem and the this very serious nature of it. Um, what can we do to, I guess, not only recognize it but stop it? Um, well, you know, prevention is one thing, um, but intervention is another. And this campaign we rolled out um, has to do with stopping an overdose death, and that is actually an intervention. So if someone is overdosing, they, they should call 911. If they have naloxone, also called Narcan, they should administer that. So if they do carry naloxone, you should know how to use it. 
um, and learning how to use it is simple. Uh, it's not a hard drug to give, um, but it only works for people that are experiencing overdose. So it should be in everyone's first aid kit or in their pocket when they're out or in their work bag or purse. Um, there's two forms. One's a nasal spray and the other one's an injectable, um, meaning you uh, pull up the medicine and, you, and administer it through a syringe. Um, if you use it on someone that's not experiencing an opioid overdose, there's no negative effects. So we know nothing um, negative that will happen to them. Um, and also everyone's protected by a law we have in Washington State called the Good Samaritan Law. Um, if you seek medical assistance um, in a drug-related overdose, you can't be prosecuted for drug possession. So the overdose victim is also protected from the drug possession charges. Um, so anyone in Washington who's state who might have a witness an opiate overdose is, is allowed to carry it and administer it. And they won't, like even if you come across somebody um, on a street or at a game, um, then, you know, feel free to use it. won't cause any harm. And and so I could go get this. I could, where, where, where is it available for one? How can, like, say I want to access this and carry it around almost sure. like it's, uh, how, how do I go mm-hmm. about getting it in, in an injectable? That seems a little, uh, that would worry me as a, as a layman. But uh, is, so you said easy to, easy to administer, especially the, the Narcan nasal spray? Sure. Um so the state of Washington uh, started with a grant in King County, um, and they got um, some money to purchase um, Narcan, Naloxone, and they anybody in King County could get it. So then a lot of people around the state were saying, well, we want this opportunity, too, and we don't live in King County. Um, so the state of Washington went out and got another grant, and uh, on, our, on our Benton Franklin Health District website, um, you can also link to it, and it is a simple form that takes you to another website um, to order it. And I think there's only three fields, the preferred name for shipping it, your address, your city, and your state, and your zip code. That's what it's required to get um, naloxone delivered to your house. So you can go to the health district's website or this, I think it's carryasecondchance.com. That's an actual website. So that's our, yeah, yeah, that's our campaign is um, carry a second chance. And it's www.carryasecondchance.com, C-A-R-R-Y-A-S-E-C-O-N-D-A-C-H-A-N-C-E.com. And there will be, uh, they'll tell you about naloxone. We'll talk about breaking the stigma and some resources that are available. And if you go to the resource page, it'll talk about how to um, order that online. Just a couple of minutes left uh, of your time on this very mm-hmm. important topic. A question about, you just talked about breaking the stigma. What do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Well, when there's stigma around any disease, people don't seek the care they need because they feel ashamed. So stigma is very harmful because it disconnects people from their community and they lose hope. We don't um, see the humanity in the person. We see the ugliness of the disease. So language really does matter. Um, we try to use people first language. So say people who use drugs instead of an addict or a person in recovery instead of a person who's clean. Um, we don't use words like clean or dirty, like drug screens. We use that they're negative or positive. That's more medically accurate. Um, 
you know, we usually try not to say they're relapsing, they're returning to use. Um, Destigmatizing substance use and talking about it openly um, is an important prevention measure, and it shouldn't be kept a secret. So being compassionate to people who use drugs and supportive, and most importantly, um, learning about addiction and talking openly in our families and our communities about it will help break the stigma. And you raise a very important point that, you know, these people that face this are, you know, they're not intending to do it necessarily to to make themselves addicted. They're doing it for a short-term, uh, you know, impact positive in their mind and, and you know, it, and it can, you know, lead, it can lead very I, quickly. I really like that. I like what you said there. So they're not intending to die, correct? And the younger, um, the population is getting younger. And when you look at teens or early 20s who are maybe first experimenting with drugs, their intent isn't to die. Um, kids are, um, you know, they're spontaneous and they, they don't have opiate use disorder yet. Um, and so they get a hold of these pills, however they get a hold of them, and they're experimenting. And unfortunately, with this drug in particular, um, death, is, death, is a rea- death is a reality. So um, the signs of an overdose are like sleepiness. I, you know, you're not able to wake up. You, you're nodding off. Um, and sometimes people slow their breathing is what you'll see. Sure. Um, they sound like they're falling asleep. Well, Shelley, this is certainly valuable information, and the website is carryasecondchance.com. You can find all the information that you need to address this very important topic. Shelley Little of the Health District, back with more right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac On Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation and certainly one of the Areas that we're very concerned with at this time of the year is the dangers and potential dangers of wildfire. Certainly around the Northwest and certainly in this part of the state of Washington, we have seen the impacts via smoke. But luckily, we, knock on wood, have not had any significant wildfires to speak of here in our part of the Northwest. But that does not mean that we're out of the woods and certainly won't be for several weeks as long as it continues to stay dry and relatively warm. And so we thought we'd uh, get some emergency response and emergency preparedness advice from the Benton Franklin Health District. And we're pleased to welcome Sierra Knutson, who that is her expertise in emergency response. And Sierra, I guess we would begin probably the most timely topic is relative to fire, uh, wildfire dangers. And you know, maybe where do you want to address on that? Is it just making sure your home is as protected as possible uh, from something like that? Thanks, Jim. Um, it's actually a couple of things that folks can do. The biggest thing that people need to kind of consider kind of out of the gate is that they want to be informed. They want to be connected to Benton and Franklin Emergency Management Alert Notification Systems. Those come out in an emergency. Let's say you've got a wildfire that's coming in or it's already into the community. They send out timely messaging that says you need to be ready, you need to be set, or you actually need to evacuate. That's really critical. 
Um, on top of that, of having the alert notification system is having your preparedness kind of stuff ready to go in the event you do have to evacuate. You know, that means having some clothes, some food, medications, um, even food for your pets so that if, you know, you do get that notification, you can jump in your car and go and be safe. And you're not trying to pack as that wildfire potentially is coming into your towards your house. And I know certainly there's been fires uh, up north of us and up into other parts, even uh, up on Stevens Pass on the western part of Washington State. And, and you raised a point of just understanding these emergency alerts. And, and we hear these level one, level two, level three. And when you have something that quick, people really knew, do need to familiarize themselves with some of this terminology. Absolutely. And part of that we've found over the last couple of years is that people are confused by level one, level two, and level three. I don't blame them. I would know what to do with that, (laughs) which is why we're really moving messaging away to get ready, get set, and go. That's much more directive and more clear, I think, for folks. I know personally for me, it's like, oh, I know what you're asking of me. So it's been a good improvement on our side. And what is, you know, we're going to probably face this for at least another month or so, right, just given the fact that it's still very, very dry. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we usually could have fires potentially up until November. It's really until the, the uh, wet season comes in that we really start to see that leveling off. So, And it's still pretty pretty crispy out there right now. Okay, and it won't be much longer before we start to see the temperatures drop. And certainly in the wintertime, we can also see some cold temperatures and if not snow, which can also cause some concerns. Uh, what about that if we're in the middle of a very a cold snap and the power goes out or things of that nature? What should people be aware of on that side of the spectrum? That's a good question. So part of it is getting ready now. Um, you know, dig out your old space heaters if that's what you use. Check to make sure that your electrical outlets are okay, your cords are intact. Plug them in now to see if they work. You know, there's nothing like having the, you know, the power go out and you plug in your electrical heater and go, oh, it doesn't work. You know, so that way if you need to buy one now, um, definitely thinking about, you know, firing up your heating blankets if you have them. If you don't have them, maybe getting one or two. Um, you know, thinking about, particularly with snow in our area, buying your ice and your snow shovels now. I am guilty of that last year. In December, I went, oh, I don't have any ice, and it's already gone. So it's kind of being proactive, thinking ahead a little bit. Um, you know, even for if you're driving, you know, thinking ahead of having an extra blanket in the car. Uh, one of my favorite uh, tips that I do is that I uh, put kitty litter in my vehicle in the event that I get stuck. Um, having an extra hat and gloves and some water. It, it can be little things, but they all add up to huge protection to you and your family. And again, with with our the passes, I guess as we know them, uh, not only going over to Western Washington but down into Eastern Oregon as well, the snow yes. can be the danger. But it, it, at the same time, you know, we have freezing rain and things that that show slow down traffic and which could stop traffic and and where you might be having to sit for a period of time as passes get closed for safety reasons. Absolutely, which is it kind of ties back into, you know, making sure that you're kind of aware before you leave and if you have to travel, making sure that, you know, you're checking in with WASDOT, um, but definitely having that gear with you in the event that you do get stuck or, you know, get stalled even there's, you know, a large pileup on the pass. I've had that happen a couple of times. So what, what's the, what, what are some of the other common things that people maybe take for granted and don't do that they can do that, that don't take a lot of uh, I guess, preparedness, but do go a long ways in the event of an emergency? That's a really good question. What we find through research is about 50% of American households don't even have an emergency plan. And really what that would mean is, you know, in the event that you lose communications and you can't get a hold of your loved ones, your children at school, 
um, you know, you've got something potentially that's happening in the community, you don't know where it's coming from. That takes probably five minutes to sign up with, you know, Benton and Franklin EM. You can uh, sign up with the NOAA weather alert system. Um, just having that basic conversation with your family of like, okay, in the event that none of our cell phone works, you know, where do we meet up or whose house do we go to? Or if we haven't heard from grandma or grandpa in this many days, you know, when do we check in with them? It can be very simple stuff like that. Um, I worked with a community member last summer, you know, on living on very limited income, just Social Security. And her goal was that she was going to save a couple cans of food a month. You know, she went and, you know, went to rummage sales and bought some extra blankets. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't, you don't have to buy a $2,000 kit, you know, in a month. Uh, Red Cross actually has a really amazing build a kit guide that actually takes you through a six month preparation. It can be little, little things that add up to just being prepared overall, which, which is the importance of it. It's not, you know, I have this really expensive setup. It's that you are doing what you need to for your family. And that, that can be done whether it's being prepared for, like, as you say, a, a fire or cold weather or a power outage or something of that nature. Uh, it, it, it works in all situations. Absolutely. And that's what the great thing about it is you don't have to have a kit for each individual event. It works across all of them. One final question. You touched on a couple of technology and, and communication means that we can all address. If you would, maybe go over a couple of those. Uh, you mentioned uh, there are some state traffic things that you can pay attention to. There's alerts, these emergency management alerts. Is that what you said? How, how does one go about doing that? So the ones that you're looking for, particularly to our area, is Benton and Franklin Emergency Management. You can navigate to their homepage, and you can just sign up right there. It's called Code Red, and that will send out any pertinent emergency information to anybody in the Benton Franklin County EMs. If you need assistance signing up, you can always call their main numbers and check in with their staff, and they'll be more than happy to. Um, Hanford Emergency Alerts is another one that's really important for our area, particularly because of the radiological potential impacts. And then we also have the NOAA, NOAA Weather um, Alert System, too, that kind of gives you a pretty detailed insight of what's coming down kind of the pike about three to five days out. So those are the top four that I usually sign up for. Um, and if you have those, you're, you're pretty covered with what's kind of happening in the area. So the bottom line message uh, tonight, Sierra? Uh, be prepared. Talk to your family and make sure that you guys have a plan and, you know, don't overthink it. Keep it simple. Tremendous advice. Sierra Knutson with the Benton Franklin Health District, a wide array of emergency response preparedness trips, uh, tips that we can all take advantage of. And again, if you would like to access some of those resources that she said, I know the health district has a very robust website that can link you to a lot of those, and that is at bfhd.wa.gov. Our thanks to Sierra Knutson with the Benton Franklin Health District. Back with the remaining minutes of Catholic on Call in a minute. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610-KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610-KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. And a reminder, if you missed any part of our program, Catholic on Call is available on podcast. Simply Google or log in to Catholic on Call, search Catholic on Call, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You know, the Tri-Cities is very fortunate to have very uh, generous community 
corporate uh, participants uh, that support organizations like the Catholic Foundation or the Tri-Cities Cancer Foundation or other nonprofit foundations in our community. And one of those companies is a Hanford contractor that's been around for a number of years, and that's Washington River Protection Solutions. And earlier this week, that company gave a very sizable financial gift to the Catholic Foundation in the amount of $15,000 in support of the great work that is being done to through donors to the Catholic Foundation. And we're very pleased to welcome uh, to our program tonight, Wes Bryan. He is the president and project manager of what's called WRPS, for short, of Washington River Protection Solutions. And Wes, thanks for taking a moment to be with us tonight. And I, I would just offer you the opportunity. Why is it important for your company to be involved in, in foundations and supporting organizations like the Catholic Foundation? Well, Jim, first, I, I want to tell you thank you very much. I uh, appreciate the opportunity just to come on and share a little bit of information about our company, but more importantly, just to, to be able to partner with you guys and such, you know, the important things that you guys do. Um, you know, being being part of a, a community is a big deal. And, and, of course, being able to partner uh, and give back to the community, to those important things like the Catholic Foundation, um, you know, is, is huge for us. You know, it, it brings about the, those key things uh, for health care, not only in the community, but that's a direct translation into, you know, into our workforce and, and all the important aspects that come with that. So, you know, whether it's, you know, the Catholic Foundation or United Way or the list goes on and on, you know, just being a strong supporter of the community is a key piece. And we've been very blessed with our partnerships in the community uh, since the company's been here, and we've, you know, we've been very fortunate enough to be able to donate a little over eight million dollars during our tenure. Well, we're very grateful for that on behalf of the Catholic Foundation and for our listeners. Some of the projects that that donors have made possible over the years at Catholic include a neonatal intensive care unit, a pediatric floor, a variety of different equipment uh, purchases to in technology that that are used to help heal folks. And then there's a couple of other areas that are that are uh, more visible maybe to the public eye and that's two canine security teams that have been funded through the Catholic Foundation and really probably and and I I want to segue into your workforce Wes and is uh, a lot of what's happened at Catholic, I know, is in the area of scholarships. Uh, there are many generous donors who contribute funds to help uh, healthcare workers pursuing their advancing their healthcare expertise and and abilities. And the other piece, and it's we've seen it in uh, great great ways with with uh, with the COVID pandemic, is just the toll that is taken on employees. And so I know one of the other areas the foundation plays a huge role is in caregiver support. And so I know that's important for you as your people. And talk a little bit about that and maybe how that connects to, to the Catholic workforce. Yeah, well, there, there's definitely a connection there. I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, we, we both have important missions with what we do. Uh, and, and despite how technical or complex they may be or high hazard, at the end of the day, we can't do it if we don't have a healthy workforce that becomes a present workforce, you know, in, in the workplace. And, you know, the preventive care uh, that's, that's made available uh, and the opportunity, you know, whether it's, whether it's through our, our, our workforce being able to obtain the preventive care or certainly get the treatment when needed, you know, is it, just the same for you guys being able to, you know, staff your workforce, which in turn comes back to not only them being present, but in many cases, 
enabling them, you know, to be able to have scholarships, to be able to go get the training and certifications they need to be part of your workforce that in turn, you know, services ours, both sharing very, you know, very important missions in what we do uh, within our respective roles, but also playing that very important role, you know, certainly to the community here in the Tri-Cities. And I know in my career here in the Tri-Cities working at Cadillac, uh, another comp- connection between the workforces is many times there are spouses uh, who either maybe come out here to work at the Hanford area and they have a spouse that works in healthcare or vice versa. So there's another connection. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, and, and all of us, you know, certainly with everything between the pandemic and, you know, the effects it's had on us, whether you're, whether it's part of the pandemic or it's part of the the ultimate infamous silver tsunami, you know, we, at, at the Hanford site, we basically, all the contractors, one Hanford contractors are, are essentially turning over our workforce right now. And when you go through that activity, you realize how challenging it is to, to in turn, turn around and recruit, you know, a, a new generation of workforce. And that indeed, you know, that, that recruitment process involves what you have to offer. And many times it is a, you know, a double, uh, a double working home, you know, for both the husband and wife in that scenario. And not always are they both working at the Hanford site or whatever. So it opens up other opportunities, you know, whether it's in the healthcare industry, you know, or at the Hanford site to be able to recruit um, as well as retain some of those employees. So that's a key thing for us as well. Just a minute or so left, if you would. I, give us an idea of the size of your workforce and, and what the primary mission right now of WRPS is. Yeah, sure. It, um, we are about 3,000 employees. Uh, that's included subcontractors. And ultimately, uh, we are responsible uh, as the tank operations contract. And what that means uh, is we're responsible for management of about 56 million gallons of highly radioactive waste. Um, and they are stored in 158 underground tanks. So the particular waste was generated um, as as part of the production of plutonium back during the Cold War. And our ultimate mission and responsibility is not only safe storage, uh, but also manage it from the single-shell tanks into double-shell tanks and ultimately treat it for disposition, which in turn mitigates one of the most significant risks that we have to the environment, not only in this region, but it's also one of the major risks we have, you know, as a country with what with what we have at, at the Hanford site and the challenge in front of us. Well, we are grateful for your corporate support. We are grateful for your professional expertise that your company provides to this major undertaking happening out at the Hanford site. Wes Bryan, the president and project manager of Washington River Protection Solution. Thanks on behalf of Catholic to you and your team, and thank you for what you and your team do to keep us all uh, safe and protected here in the Tri-Cities. Wes Bryan with WRPS. Thanks to him, and thanks to all of our guests tonight, and thank you. We'll talk again next week.